0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: And a very good afternoon to you. Hope your day is going well. Today, this hour, South American-based meat company Minerva Foods confirms it has closed its Shark Lake abattoir near Esperance. So what does that mean for the sheep producers in that area? You'll find out shortly. And also today, just ahead of tonight's announcement of this year's Rural Woman of the Year, you're going to meet Queensland finalist Emma Gibbons. She's the founder of Huds & Tote, which is a company creating dog treats using surplus vegetables and farmed insect protein. Now, these don't look like dog treats. These look like donuts or biscuits that you would want to eat. And Emma says it's all about treating your best friend.
2: They're brought out at birthday parties for dogs and at coffee dates with dogs. So we sell a lot to cafes, bringing a little bit of joy into people's lives by sharing a happy moment with their dog. That's what we really want to achieve. And I think we have achieved that by all the Instagram tags we get. And then we've done it with the horses as well. We've created like really beautiful cookies for horses so they can be rewarded at the end of the day after all their hard work that they do for their riders.
1: And you do spend a lot of money on these treats about... $300 million will be spent on dog treats alone in Australia this year. You will meet Emma Gibbons before the news at 1 o'clock today. It is 6 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And President of the WA Farmers Grain Section says many WA growers will not comply with a certification system this season, which means they could miss out on a $25 per tonne premium for their canola. The ISCC is a global certification system supporting sustainable, traceable and climate-friendly supply chains. And under the rules of the system, you cannot aerial spray crops with certain chemicals within a 500 metre distance to any water bodies. So things like lakes, rivers, ponds, creeks or even dams. And if you do, you won't get the certification you won't get the extra dollars, Mark Fowler. Why are these aerial spraying restrictions coming to a head this season?
3: Linda, I think it's because, as part of the CBH and Sustainable Grain Australia processes to accredit themselves at a trade level, that this has been identified as an issue arising out of some audits that were carried out last year, where I think ten or so growers infringed this requirement, and it really caused CBH in particular to focus on that requirement and seek clarification from the ICC as to what water bodies means for this purpose and the answers they got from the ICC were, were, were pretty broad and then CBH sought to put some some more meaning around that and tried to exclude dams from that and the ICC at that stage were not agreeable to that. So. It seems from that process that the, the, the wide definition of water bodies for this purpose is very broad um, and even though it's in a, a relatively old rule it's kind of put a new scrutiny on it um, which has some fairly serious implications for WA and indeed Australian grain growers.
1: And what chemicals, what range of chemicals are we talking about here?
3: There are a wide range of chemicals. So the, the, the World Health Organization schedule 1a 1b and 2 um, chemicals and as it turns out most of the chemicals that we apply by air are on that list so we're talking uh, i think phosphide which is a mouse bait so all of our mouse baits which are mostly applied by air pretty well all of the insecticides and most of our fungicides diquat which is used as, a, as a, among other things as a pre-harvest desiccant on roundup ready canola and many of our herbicides that would typically be applied um, in areas that get too boggy in the winter in terms of our first first spray passes mid, mid-winter when we, when we sometimes can't get onto our paddocks and need to use an aeroplane to actually apply the necessary uh, spray pass.
1: So it's not a, you can't just make the switch and go from aerial spraying it to spraying it out with the boom spray?
3: No, that's absolutely the case and this is why, it's, um, um, this is why we think it's really important to clarify that with the ICC. It's not just it's not just a, a, a choice that affects logistics. In many cases, there is no option. If your paddocks are too boggy to get on with a with a with a ground boom, you have no other choice.
1: Well, can't farmers just ensure that they do leave that five hundred metre distance between the waterways?
3: No. The APVMA has got a very detailed set of requirements which apply to our chemicals, and they they're usually not more than about fifty metres um, for certain chemistry, and, and none for others. And then we obviously work around those. Um, but five hundred metres is, is ten times that. Um, and if you actually consider that there are something like 175,000 dams in Western Australia, that equates to about nine million hectares, which is about a third of our more than a third of our grain growing area. Um, it's just not feasible to leave insects, disease and weed in weeds in that proportion of our paddocks, because it's obviously going to reinfest or 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 damage too much crop. Uh, to be feasible, and this is this is, I guess, the key point is that where this all leads us to is that there's there's not an alternative that we can feasibly apply if this interpretation is maintained by ICC, and that's why the Australian Technical Working Group, which I chair, which has all the the grower representatives from the grower groups around the country, and also trade representatives to provide feedback to the ICC. That's why, via that forum, we're seeking to get some alignment between the ICC requirements and the Australian regulation in this space, the label requirements of our chemicals, so that it becomes much more tailored to the type of chemicals and the science that's done around that and is actually feasible for us to achieve.
1: What are the chances of that happening? I mean, are you seeing any signs that some of these systems are taking into account the circumstances, the the growing conditions here in Australia compared to what's going on in Europe, for example, and to allow for that difference between systems or we're just going to be dictated to because we're seeing a lot of this with the, the types of chemicals that are allowed to be used in Europe and now this sort of restriction around aerial spraying.
3: This is the problem we've we consistently seem to butt up against with this sort of scheme is they have like a one paragraph requirement which cuts across all the, the, the detail and nuance of the Australian regulatory system um, in, in a way that doesn't really produce the the intended result. It's impractical. It doesn't take account of the regulatory context and the environmental context that applies here in Australia. For example, the main logic for this rule is to protect biodiversity. But our Australian dams are largely devoid of of, of any sort of aquaculture. uh, And they don't typically overflow into flowing water streams that might produce an effect for biodiversity. I will say that ICC has in the past Granted, Australia some accommodation in particular areas. We've seen that with O'Methwaite when they sought to not permit the use of that chemistry anywhere in the Australian farming system. If you wish to remain accredited, we had we had the Department of Agriculture in Western Australia produce uh, a letter and 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 evidence that we sent to the ICC, and they were they were able to give us some accommodation there. This is a much broader thing because it applies to a lot more chemistry. And the ICC, the whole basis for the scheme is that it's a it's a universal team. it doesn't have an Australian version a European version you know an American version there's one set of requirements which of course we've always been critical about it because it doesn't take into account Australia, the Australian environmental context and what sustainability means in Australia.
1: So what are the chances the of changing it a, then?
3: Well, well it has to actually because it's a universally applied scheme and it's one of their I guess one of their key requirements in the um, that, that's been around for a while. I it, I understand it has to go to the European board, which only meets quarterly. So the concern we have at the moment is that there's no real assurance that it'll happen that quickly or that um, it'll happen, that we'll get the, the accommodation that we're seeking. Um, and then that begs the question, what do we do then? The Australian trade, you know, in the meantime, will be in the unenviable position of, of having to price grain when it buys grain from growers, and it won't know whether it needs to buy it with an ISSC premium built into that, or or that or they can only buy it at the, the non-ISSC price. And equally, on the other hand, growers will have to scratch their heads and go, well, if we're selling into this market at the moment, are we really only selling at the non-ISSC price? And are we potentially missing out on more money if and when this issue is resolved? So there's a there's a huge amount of uncertainty that potentially flows from this. I will say I've been talking to CBH this morning. They're working, you know, pretty hard on this to try to get some resolution for it, which 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 we all need to know how we can market our canola in the coming months.
1: On the Country Hour, it's a quarter past twelve. Mark Fowler, the president of WA Farmers Grain Section, here today, just raising concerns that. Many WA grain growers will not comply with a certification system this season, which means they could be missing out on quite a lot of money for their canola. Under ISCC rules, you cannot aerial spray crops with certain chemicals within a 500 metre distance to any water bodies, lakes, rivers, ponds, creeks and importantly, dams. And if you do, you don't get the certification, you don't get that premium. Mark, how much money per tonne will growers miss out on if they don't make the certification?
3: It's about $25 a tonne premium, and that's a lot of money. I mean, mm. For growers that grow a few thousand ton of canola, that adds up to a lot of money. And, I, that's, and, and that's one of the things I'd like to, the messages I'd like to convey today is that I guess growers in this scenario, if we don't see any accommodation given by the ICC in this space, growers will have several choices. The first is if they are in the, the what we think is a, a small portion of people that are still compliant, um, and that's probably because, you know, we've had a dry year this year, so airplanes haven't been required as much. But to the extent that someone's compliant, they should definitely certify. If they're not compliant and they they, they can choose to... Certifi- and to not certify, in which case they'll be they'll be losing that twenty five dollar premium. Our concern is that with that much money on the line that many growers will decide even knowing that they're not compliant, that they'll decide to take a chance and and certify in the hope that they're either A not that they're not audited or B they you know they can not audit and not have a record of it to, hmm. to, to What are the consequences that, that, that of that though? Premium. And this, and and our our message to growers is that we, you know, we really recommend they don't do that. Firstly, there's there's a number of points I'd make about that. Firstly, the chances of being audited with less people certifying is going to be greater because there's less people that are that are certifying as uh, as sustainable under the ICC system. The second thing is that if, as a result of audits, people are caught doing this, there's going to be more and more audits. They have to increase their sample size quite significantly, so more and more people are going to be audited. The second major thing I would say is that if you're found to be non-compliant, you'll be locked out of the IACC system for a period of time. You'll also be in breach of your sale contract, which, which at best will mean you'll lose your $25 premium, but it might also mean you might be called upon to fill that contract with certified grain, which you'll have to acquire in the market. The other major point to make in this case is that you run the risk of causing CBH or Sustainable Grain Australia to lose their trader level certification, and that would mean that all the other growers that they're dealing with that are correctly certifying would, would lose that, that avenue to that market and that premium.
1: When's this going to be sorted out, Mark?
3: Well, we hope very soon because this is a, this is an important tool. We would say it could be a lot better if there was an Australian version of it, but certainly in the it for this year to, um although it is also important to realise the dynamics in the market at the moment. This year of any year is probably a year when not as much canola is going to go into Europe. Europe is having a fantastic growing season. They've got a lot of canola. Canada, on the other hand, has historically been a major exporting nation and has built a lot of its own crushing capacity. is not going to be, they don't, in fact, be importing canola and all of their traditional trade destinations um, are going to be looking for canola. So it's very possible that a significant amount of the canola out of Western Australia and out of Australia that's exported will go to non-European destinations. So... It might be that the premium to Europe is not as great as it has been in previous years. It would it also begs the question whether the $25 a tonne discount that's currently pro- applied is appropriate this year. If most of the canola is not actually going to Europe, well, then we would ask whether that should be reduced. It historically, has been $10, uh, the difference between certified and non-certified canola. And while we realise that the gains into the European market are, much greater than that. That has been the the incentive, I guess, if you like, or the or the disincentive, depending on how you read it, to certify or not be certified. But we would question whether twenty five dollars is appropriate in the current circumstances, because, um, as we say, we think a lot of the canola won't go to a European destination and probably can't be supported. And it will also take away that that moral. It you know, will reduce that moral risk of farmers looking at the the the, the question of whether to certify or not certify and looking at the $25 amount on the table and not run the gauntlet of certifying when there's a question as to the extent to which they're they are going to be compliant.
1: Mark, thanks for being part of the show today.
3: Thanks, Belinda.
1: Mark Fowler is President of the WA Farmers Grain Section. Curious to know what you make of this situation and how best you think it can be sorted out. On the text 0448 604 I did put a call in to the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group. Uh, No one available today, but I think it's important to get someone from the co-op onto the program just to talk about, you know, what is the plan if this certification system, the ISCC, doesn't accommodate or make a modification to suit Australian standards, to align with Australian standards about this aerial spraying. Under the certification system, you need that 500 metre buffer. Um, That's the international system. But here in Australia, the APVMA just allows for a 50 metre distance between any water bodies. So if that change isn't made, what are the implications? What are the options? Because as Mark was saying, not many people are going to comply with the system if this rule is in force. So hopefully we can get someone from the CBH group on the program a bit later this week. 21 past 12, be part of the conversation on text 0448 21 past 12.
4: This is The Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: South American-based meat company Minerva Foods has confirmed it has closed its Shark Lake abattoir near Esperance. The abattoir was processing thousands of sheep every week, employed about 50 people, and it had been open for just over 12 months. Minerva says it's reviewing its Esperance operations, and during the review the site won't operate, but there's no word on how long that review might take or what it involves. David Vandenberg runs sheep at Skadden and he was using the abattoir regularly and was pretty disappointed when he heard, heard the news that it's shut.
5: I think it was through my daughter on Facebook. Um, she just read a post and, and rang us up and, and um, that sort of alerted us because we, we actually had a booking uh, today um, and so we found out last Sunday. So yeah, it was I mean, I don't really expect the company to contact individual producers, but it would have been handy for him to you know give a bit of an explanation to do it in the in the middle of, of of the spring flush for lambs um, when when the processing sector is already under a lot of pressure. just seems bad timing or pretty ordinary really.
6: So what sheep did you have that were, were due to go through?
5: Uh, they are the last of our old season lambs, our red taggers. And look, we we weren't alone. There was the, obviously other bookings um, locally too.
6: So, what did you do? What do you where to from here for them?
5: Well, we've managed to swap out our new season suckers and get rid of our old season lambs. Um, so we'll just have to deal with the suckers a bit later on, and hopefully we can get a booking. But you know, there's you know the processes are under even more pressure now.
6: So, so has that been the same for everyone that was um, expecting to have stock go through Minerva, that they found other options or is there stock that is now stranded? What's the lay of the land there?
5: Well, uh, th- there's definitely other producers which um, have to find other arrangements. We were just lucky we had a booking somewhere else and, and also I think Minerva actually ha- has sheep on property at the abattoir there that that need to find a home somewhere. So hopefully the processes elsewhere can fit them in.
6: Those sheep that are at Minerva, they can't go back out on farm?
5: I'm pretty sure that sort of the the quarantine arrangement is they're not allowed to go back on farm. And look, you wouldn't want them anyway. And look, you know, the season's coming to a bit a, bit of a grinding hold in the northern regions here. So people don't want, you know, there's not room anyway.
6: Mm. Dave, what's your understanding of how many sheep are at the abattoir in their holding yards, ready for processing? That you're saying can't go back out on farm because of quarantine? Do you know how many?
5: Oh, look, I don't, I don't know, and I'd be guessing if I said, but um, there's a fair little mob there from what you can see driving past. Um, but yeah, I guess it it, it points, it you know, shows how sudden the the decision was. You know, I guess people were just about ready to turn up back to work and, uh, and you know, the sheep were there, ready to go, and they pulled the pin.
6: What impact does this have on the sheep-producing community in Esperance? The nearest abattoirs about 500 kilometres away. It's difficult to get processing space at any abattoir. What sort of effect does this have? <laughs>
5: We were really pleased when they reopened. It it just means you can get smaller lines in. You know, if you've got 120 lambs ready, it's, it's pretty hard to find room on a truck just for that amount and then also get that booking, you know, in the larger abattoirs. So it was good to have that relationship locally. It probably would affect the smaller producers more so than the larger ones. I mean, the larger ones generally have forward contracts, but it's a bit of a guess of when you think your lambs would be ready in the spring. So... It's kind of hard to make it, you know, to to lock them in if you don't know when they're going to be ready.
6: Yeah, you're pretty disappointed, Dave, I imagine.
5: Oh, yes. I mean, obviously, they have their reasons, but um, timing could have been a little better.
6: Yeah. For some people, uh, I've heard that there is concern that lambs will cut teeth and basically will now become mutton. So really the price that was expected that to get from them won't be there because they'll be classified as, as an older sheep, as a hogget, or something like that. Is that a concern that you've heard, where those sheep that were meant to be processed will age and lose value?
5: Oh, look, that's that's definitely been happening all over the state. Um, people have been stuck with lines of, of sheep. We have not been able to get them processed. You know, and, and the thing locally is they've been shut since early August, so these lambs should have gone weeks ago, but then they delayed their opening and to, the opening was meant to be today. Yeah, so there will be that issue, particularly if you have to wait a few more weeks before you can get them into another abattoir. So they might be, they might be halving the, the price that they expected to get uh, a month ago.
1: Scadden farmer Dave Vandenberg with Joe Prendergast. Minerva says where possible, staff will be redeployed to other facilities in the group with a small number taking up redundancies and all existing meat orders are going to be fulfilled by Minerva Foods Australia through operations at Tammon, a few hundred kilometres east of Perth and also in Victoria. You can read more of the story. It's online now. Search ABC Minerva. Shut. ABC Minerva shut for Joe's story. 27 past 12. We'll check in with the newsroom shortly. First, though, in the last year, Australia's agriculture exports to China jumped more than 20% to a record high of $16.6 billion. That's one of the findings in the latest report from Rural Bank. So despite tariffs on wine, hay and seafood, China is by far Australia's most important customer. Andrew Smith is Rural Bank's head of agribusiness development and says wheat exports are the main reason for the latest jump in China trade.
0: China continued to be the largest market for us, but also the largest growth market for the second year in a row. We, we had exports to China rose by just over $3 billion or 20-odd percent, And that's interesting considering that we've had some market closures with our, with our trade with China, but we did have a, a good increase, particularly in terms of wheat exports, which were up about $1.5 billion for the year. And we also saw some growth from beef, almonds and cotton. So despite that rise in, in um, export value, it, it still only rose moderately as a percentage of the total market to 20%. And this has come off where it was back in 2019, which was around 29% of our exports were going to China. So we've obviously had to diversify. And uh, interesting, though, that China has, has come back on those main commodities.
7: China's not traditionally a large exporter of wheat because they do produce a lot of their own wheat. They're usually pretty self-sufficient. But with uh, the barley trade coming back online, do you expect that level of exports into China for grain to, to be maintained?
0: Look, we, we do see another good year for, for grain exports. I think what played out last year as well with the Russia-Ukraine situation was that a number of the Asian countries were looking to uh, import from those closer to them and where they could get security and reliability of supply. So I think the barley one will be a kicker for us because uh, obviously we've not had that opportunity. we had... I think just over 300,000 tonnes of barley go from WA in the last two weeks as that market reopened. So that, that that's a real positive for our grain growers.
7: Overall, it looks like grain really led the way with overall Australian exports, which hit a record high. You know, what happened over the year with exports?
0: Yeah, look, of the $80 billion that we did export, just on $31 billion was in crops. And uh, that was a result of the, the tremendous uh, seasonal conditions that we had for cropping across the country, particularly in Western Australia, but uh, as well as good uh, average export prices, it was a, an elevated period for, for prices and we had strong demand from around the world for our, our grain. So certainly grain, uh, in particular wheat, has really led the way in terms of the overall index
7: and if we look at state by state, Victoria is the, the top of the pack here for that period?
0: Yes, and Victoria is um, the largest export state. We, we saw a rise again last year of just a, on 8% to $19 billion. And, and that's about 24% of the overall export value. And we had good growth from our cropping regions, but also horticulture and beef were the major drivers of the growth last year.
7: And with Victoria, and in talking about horticulture, is it almonds that was behind the the increase that that they experienced?
0: Yeah, primarily almonds. We also saw a growth in fruit exports, and and that's been a continuing trend in in recent years. But uh, that almond crop, particularly with the season we had, was well up and, and did make a large impact on that market.
7: And looking at the other states, WA and South Australia also had a, a record export value out of their states?
0: Yes, WA was the largest growth state. It had a, a rise of just over 4 billion or, or 30 odd percent increase, which really driven by the crop, uh, which was again off the back of a strong year the prior year. But they also did have some growth in uh, seafood, sheep, and beef exports out of WA in the last 12 months.
7: And the two states that didn't do so well, Tasmania and Northern Territory.
0: Yes, Tasmania was back a bit, mainly due to the dairy uh, export value being down, and primarily that was due to lower volumes. Prices were quite strong, but we did see a 25% reduction in the dairy exports from Tasmania. And in terms of beef in in Northern Territory, it's about 95% of their overall exports, and that was a reduction of uh, volume out of the NT over the last twelve months.
7: And looking at commodities, what happened with livestock, cattle and sheep?
0: The sheep industry did see a reduction in overall, just slight reduction in overall exports, particularly our lamb uh, exports, which were impacted primarily by a reduction in price export values for. Australian lamb have come back quite some way over the last 12 months, and that was impacted. Our beef as well was just gone flat year on year. But uh, the outlook there, considering uh, some of the demand coming out of the US for our export beef being a bit more positive, we, we should see that at least increase this coming 12 months.
7: And then getting the crystal ball ready, what are we sort of looking at for the year ahead? Are we expecting some changes?
0: Look, we are. We've certainly had a good run of, of seasons and prices, but uh, with with particularly the, the cropping sector, we are anticipating our winter wheat and grain crop will be back around 33% year on year, so that that's going to impact our overall uh, level of exports.
7: Head
1: of Agribusiness Development at Rural Bank, Andrew smith with Emma Field. 27 to 1. And Tabarak Al Jaroud in the studio with the news headlines.
8: In the headlines, a former elite gymnast at the WA Institute of Sport says more needs to be done to change the culture of the organisation. Waste has been rocked by allegations of abuse from a number of former child gymnasts, accusations which a Sport Integrity Australia report upheld 18 months ago. The government has announced new board members for the trouble-plagued organisation. Australia's new sex discrimination commissioner says she's appalled by further revelations of sexual harassment inside Parliament House. Former Coalition Minister Karen Andrews has told the ABC's Kitchen Cabinet program that during question time, a male colleague used to heavily breathe on the back of her neck. Commissioner Dr Anna Cody says her predecessor did a lot of work to address sexual harassment issues in Parliament House, but there's more to do. And a First Nations disability advocate has called for more clear and accessible information about the upcoming referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The First People's Disability Network is hosting forums across across Australia to give people with disabilities a chance to ask questions ahead of the national vote. More news at one. Thank you for the update, Tabarak. Appreciate that. 26 to one.
4: You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: Just before the news at one, it's soft to Muche again today and going through the yarding and the prices at the sheep market and also taking a look at the north of the state because supply chains in the Kimberley are set to be interrupted again with some more work to be done on the bridge over the Fitzroy River. We'll look at the implications of that for uh, road transport uh, and the road trains going over that because there's a little bit of um, yeah managing time frames around that with that change set to come before the wet season. Now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. It has been a minute and but Angeline Prasad is back. Good to have you back on the country. Hour. Angeline, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. A little bit of rain, I hear, sort of on the south coast of the state today, but there's a bit more on the way into tomorrow. What's the story?
9: Good afternoon, Belle. Yes, there's a lot of weather happening over the next couple of days. Starting off with today, we do have an inland trough that's extending across the eastern parts of the southwest land division. And there's a weak front that's moving through the far southwest. Um, So that inland trough is triggering uh, isolated thunderstorms, uh, essentially east of about al to Lake Grace to about Bremer Bay and uh, extending into the adjacent goldfield Field southwest of Kalgoorlie uh, all the way to the east of Esperance. So rainfall wise, I'm not expecting much over the northeastern parts of the Central Weed Belt today, but southeastern parts uh, could see up to a couple of millimetres and uh, the eastern parts of the Great Southern and the western parts of the southeast coastal west of Esperance, maybe about 2 to 8 millimetres. So these thunderstorms Storms are on the drier side, uh, but um, suddenly they do have thunder uh, lightning activity of, in them. So there is that risk that uh, those dry lightning strikes may uh, may uh, may start fires. So that's something to. To look out for. We're not expecting much rainfall with these thunderstorms the further north you go. Um, the, the front that is sliding through the far southwest, um, there are no thunderstorms in there at the moment, but I do expect thunderstorms to develop later in the day, essentially south of about Harvey to about um, to about Albany, and that should continue throughout the night. Um, further east, across the eastern parts of the uh, sort of um, uh, the far and parts of the South West land division is also quite warm as well. So, um, and that should change tomorrow. Those warm conditions should shift further East because we have got a much stronger cold front, uh, moving across the Southern WA, um, uh, tomorrow. So this front is, is going to be, it's going to be fairly unusual for this time of the year. Uh, it's, um, um, it's, uh, unusually strong for this time of the year. So we're looking at um, uh, the front moving through the West Coast uh, sort of um, mid-afternoon and progressing eastwards uh, through the Southwest Land Division uh, during tomorrow afternoon and evening period. Now, this uh, cold front is, um, is going to produce... Uh, A couple of weather conditions. So we're looking at uh, strong to damaging wind gusts, uh, winds with damaging wind gusts. So in terms of the windy conditions, we're looking at, uh, potentially winds getting up to that 50 to 60 kilometers per hour in some areas. There's also a risk of land gale, especially closer to that southwest coast, but can't rule it out over the inland parts of the southwest land division as well during tomorrow. Damaging wind gusts are expected to be sort of around that 100 kilometers per hour. So widespread showers and thunderstorms expected with this cold front as it sweeps through the southern WA tomorrow. What's unusual about this cold front is the extent of it. It's almost our warning area is... Uh, It's almost the size of New South Wales. So uh, quite an impressive cold front coming through tomorrow. Now, um, there's also a risk of um, locally uh, damaging, uh, sorry, locally destructive wind gusts up to 125 kilometres per hour. So there's that risk of uh, severe thunderstorms tomorrow. Now, rainfall... um, the heavier falls are likely to fall in the southwest, and we're expecting about 20 to 40 millimeters tomorrow, um, west of about Dalwallanoo to about Albany. And f- there could be heavier falls up to 60 to 70 millimeters, especially through the Scarp, the Darling Scarp, and also the southwest district. But suddenly, heavy falls are likely through that area. The rest of the southwest land division um, is also going to get some rain. We're looking at about widespread 8 to 12 millimetres and they could be isolated folds 12 to 16 millimetres all the way out to Southern Cross to about Esperance, uh, These falls are likely to extend into the northern parts of the uh, the uh, central west, uh, not expecting much there, generally about two to five millimeters north of about uh, Geraldton, sort of in the Moroa area. Um, and also the southern parts of the Gascoyne are likely to see some light rainfall, um, maybe uh, up to two millimeters, and there could be isolated falls up two to five millimetres. The front is going to rapidly move off to the east um, tomorrow evening and we do see conditions easing um, uh, going into Thursday.
1: All right. There is a bit going on, isn't there, Angeline? Yes. Uh, let's take a look further afield into northern and eastern parts of WA.
9: Um, not a lot is happening across the north. I'm uh, thinking uh, clear skies across the north, and, um, and, uh, and that weather pattern is expected to continue uh, through the rest of the week. The winds are a bit fresh in the morning, so um, so kicking up a bit of uh, uh, warmer conditions in the north, but apart from that I'm not expecting any weather across the northern parts of the state. Now the eastern parts of the state, so the fields and Eucla and South Interior, those very warm and windy conditions are going to drive up the fire dangers tomorrow, so uh, we are expecting a fire weather warning uh, for parts of the Goldfields and South Interior tomorrow,
1: and then for this afternoon, any warnings?
9: So there are a few warnings um, that are out this afternoon. The first one is obviously the severe weather warning that is covering the southwest, the entire southwest land division, and also extending into the southern parts of the Gascoyne and and also the gold fields. Now, this severe weather warning is for damaging to locally destructive winds that are expected to develop during Wednesday. Um, We have mentioned heavy falls in the warning and if those heavy falls do occur, they're most likely going to be with uh, thunderstorms and separate severe thunderstorm warnings will be issued for that tomorrow. Uh, Apart from that, uh, we have got a warning to sheep graziers for the lower west, southwest, great southern and central weed belt and that's mostly going to to be driven with those very windy conditions that we are forecasting tomorrow. The fire weather warning hasn't gone out, but we're expecting a fire weather warning for the northern parts of the gold fields and the uh, south interior. Um, and looking at uh, coastal winds, uh, we do have strong to gale force winds um, extending uh, from uh, the uh, Gascoigne Coast, all the way down to the Esperance coast for today uh, today, sorry for tomorrow, and uh, today we 've just got the stronger warnings for the North Kimberley Coast.
1: Thank you so much for going through all of that Angeline eighteen to one uh, this just in from Michael at Busselton. It is raining at Bustleton. probably had a couple of mills so far uh, that 's what Angeline was talking about too. There is a little bit of rain about in some parts right now, more on the way. 18 to 1. In the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there has been no rain across WA's northern and eastern forecast districts, and a very similar story in the southwest land division, with the highest reading in the southwest of the state at Cape Lewin, which had the grand total of 3 millimetres in the gauge overnight. We'll get to Moucher just before the news at one and check out the sheep market today. Before that, though, supply chains in the north of the state are set to be interrupted with more work to be done on the bridge over the Fitzroy River. The two-lane low-level crossing will close at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning to make way for embankment works for the new bridge. The work has to get underway before the start of the wet season and all traffic will have to take a detour onto the single-lane crossing four kilometres upstream. But road trains and some oversized vehicles will only be able to use it during daylight hours. Louise Bellato is the executive officer of the NT Road Transport Association and says the arrangement will have an impact on workflows.
10: For a start, we're we're grateful that the single lane is open, and uh, hopefully it'll remain open till you know even December uh, when the rains come, if they come at that stage. But it will absolutely have an impact because we've now got a curfew in place between dark in, and uh, daylight, and hopefully it will be dark and daylight, not 5:30 p.m. and 6:30 uh, a.m. Uh, if the um, you know sunlight comes up at 6am we'd like to see the road trains able to access that single lane uh, as soon as possible because it does impact on everyone's uh, work schedules and it will mean you know reorganizing and ensuring that either the road trains are off the road sooner or actually not having to go through Fitzroy crossing at that time. Yeah what
2: impact does that have is it often the the night hours when road trains would be passing through that area?
10: No. Previously, uh, most road trains were travelling through Fitzroy Crossing during daylight hours for other reasons, but certainly not having to break up. Mm. At this stage, that's the advice that uh, main roads have upgraded the single lane and they're supposed to be bitumening the approaches and putting concrete on the walls to allow uh, road trains to not do the break up to singles and then shuttle them across because, you know, that adds at least half a day to their work schedule having to do that. So a road train, three trailers able to just go across during daylight hours is still much more preferable than uh, having to break up and uh, ferry singles across.
2: How much planning has the industry been doing to get ready for this coming wet season?
10: Both the industry and uh, the main roads and the wider emergency services have all been involved in discussions about the impact on freight coming north and uh, what that will look like again because obviously as soon as the crossing is underwater they'll all have to be coming the long way around Uh, there is talk about um, some sort of barge services potentially being available but highly unlikely that that will be for road trains and general freight uh, or in any substantial amount anyway so um, what happened after the emergency event, trucks will have to be doing the same. And the biggest impost is on those small businesses in the Kimberleys.
3: In the longer term, what do you want to say to try to strengthen these supply
2: chains so that you know one single weather event doesn't have such a long lasting impact?
10: Well, we're delighted that um, Main Roads has built back better because that bridge is going to be you know, 100 metres longer and supposedly six times as strong as the previous bridge. But as soon as you have a, you know, an amazing two-lane bridge there, you've got a whole series of single-lane bridges after that. So the Great Northern Highway is definitely not resilient to you know, flood events by any means. It'll certainly be better having that Fitzroy Crossing upgrade. We say the same in the Northern Territory, especially about the Catherine River Bridge. So we've got choke points, particular areas of high risk, if that were to um, occur, and it may not be a flood event, it may be something else that uh, impacts the, the road infrastructure. So there is definitely a lot of high-level thinking going into how to make our road infrastructure more resilient now. But... We are grateful that the single lane crossing has been upgraded to allow road trains to access it during the daytime between now and when the the river floods. Louise Bellato,
1: she's the Executive Officer of the Northern Territory Road Transport Association. She was speaking with Eddie Williams, 13 to 1. Do you like to spoil your pets? Well, if so, you are not alone. Australians are expected to spend close to $303 million on dog treats just this year. With her all-woman workforce and biscuits that look good enough for you to eat, Emma Gibbons is breaking into a multi-billion-dollar global pet treat market. These are for
9: the doggies. Merry Christmas, phones we have here. Getting ready for Christmas season. And that's
1: done. That's another order done.
2: Welcome to Hudson Toke. I'm Emma Gibbons. We're manufacturing all of our dog treats and horse treats right here in Coolum at the Sunshine Coast in Queensland.
11: They look like they've got icing on them. You've got them in biscuit shapes, cake shapes, all sorts of things.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So they're brought out at birthday parties for dogs and at coffee dates with dogs. So we sell a lot to cafes, bringing a little bit of joy into people's lives by sharing a happy moment with their dog. That's what we really want to achieve. And I think we have achieved that by all the Instagram tags we get, and then we've done it with the horses as well. We've created like really beautiful cookies for horses, so they can be rewarded at the end of the day after all their hard work that they do for their riders.
11: And some of the treats you make, I mean, they look good enough for people to eat.
2: Yeah, I think they are often mistaken, <laughs> and and people do play tricks on their kids. <laughs> but yes, they are designed to appeal to the human eye. But once again, they're made with dogs' health in mind. Dog treats and dog food,
11: big business.
2: Yeah, it's a massive business. So the pet food market in Australia is worth over $3.7 billion per annum. The pet treat segment is worth in excess of $302.9 million. Then the US market is just like greatly magnified. We're looking at in excess of $50 billion alone in the US. So we only need a little bit of that to, you know, keep us going. <laughs> what year did you actually found the company? Um, in 2012, it began we sat around the table and came up with the retail name of Hudson Toke. So Hudson Toke came from our son's imaginary dragons, (laughs) Toke and Huds. And we were sitting there and he was playing with them behind us. And we're like, well, they mean a lot to us as a family, though let's turn it into the brand name. You you don't have a picture when you hear that name. So we get to build that picture in your head of, you know, quality and world class and all of that. And creating like planet-friendly pet products, we can see that traditional meat sources are getting harder to get, are more expensive, and we really wanted to look at sustainable options, and we um, saw that insects were a really viable alternative to traditional meat, mostly because of their sustainability, and dogs absolutely love them. So the insects we use are Australian-grown soldier fly larvae. Their whole purpose in life is to compost food waste matter like within 14 days they can be then turned into a really high protein meal it's like 60 percent protein with the horse
11: treats you're actually utilizing vegetables
2: Yeah, so we're working with farmers in the Scenic Rim in Queensland to utilise excess vegetables and turn them into vegetable protein powders, so to speak. Then we input them into our horse treats like our carrot bics, our veggie tubes, which have got carrot and beetroot. We actually utilise the pumpkin in our USA Krispy Kreme donuts because they were a pumpkin spice flavour. So the little old Queensland pumpkin is sitting on shelves across the US at the moment. Donut form <laughs> we're selling across Australia now to pit shops, produce stores, salary stores. And we sell globally with a collaboration with Krispy Kreme Donuts to the USA, UK and New Zealand, which has been just so exciting. How on earth did you end up clinching that deal? They loved our products and said, do you think you could design a um, donut that looks like some of our best sellers? I went, absolutely. And they said we'd love to collaborate, which is just such an amazing opportunity for a little Queensland brand like ours. We have um, turned it into a year-on-year event and we're slowly owning it international dog day across the world (laughs) so these are dog treats that look like donuts they look sweet and delicious but they're made specifically for dogs so they do not taste like they look they're not sweet they're nutty
11: and what I think is really interesting about your business too Emma Gibbons is that apart from your husband Russell you've got an all-female workforce
2: Yes, I do. Yeah, we're a great crew here of varying backgrounds and diverse age groups. We all get on really well. We put in a massive effort as a team to help each other. A fun, outgoing team that all really enjoy what we do. Was it a conscious decision to hire women? Um, it's sort of just morphed in that way in the last two to three years and it's just gelled really well and worked really well.
11: And Russell goes okay with all of that?
2: <laughs> yes, he just calls himself the heavy lifter, but Russell is a very integral part to our business and we couldn't do it without him either. You've been
11: named the Queensland winner of the Agri Futures Rural Women's Award. What did that mean to you?
2: Oh, it meant so much. I'm a country girl, I was born and bred in country Queensland. I feel that I can showcase what good old hard country work can do to create a successful international business. The AgriFutures Rural Women's Award has just been an amazing experience. I've found it so supportive and positive. I'm just thrilled to be a part of it because of all the other amazing finalists that I'm standing beside. We've become an amazing sisterhood, which is really unique as well. I hope I can inspire lots more women to um, be more entrepreneurial in the agricultural landscape and take those little risks here and there and go with their crazy ideas. If I can be a voice for that, that's awesome.
1: Emma Gibbons, and she was speaking to Jennifer Nichols about her pet treat company. And Emma is the Queensland finalist in the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award for this year. And the WA Rural Woman for 2023 is Michelle Moriarty for her commitment to supporting widowed people across regional Western Australia. So all the state winners have been announced. Tonight, the National Rural Women's Award winner is going to be announced at an event in Canberra so you'll find out later tonight or here on the country out tomorrow good luck to Michelle representing WA tonight 6 minutes to 1 a huge challenge for agriculture is how to feed a growing global population while reducing the industry's carbon footprint so, a lot of work is going into finding ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions associated with nitrogen fertilisers. Dr. Rob Norton has a PhD in crop agronomy and is working on a white paper commissioned by Fertiliser Australia, which looks at some of the key challenges and opportunities associated with this work.
12: Yeah, one of the byproducts of uh, using fertiliser is the fraction of it escapes as nitrous oxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas and uh, most of the nitrous oxide about 80 percent from australia is generated through uh, agriculture and about a quarter of all that comes uh, specifically from fertilizers directly but then there's also uh, secondary effects of uh, nitrogen fertilizer with uh, off-site nitrous oxide effects so yes it's a it's an issue that the fertiliser industry is recognised and wants to address.
10: Where about are you in the process at the moment? I understand it's in draft form, but we're likely to start finding out some findings and recommendations very soon.
12: Yeah, the recommendations I made have gone to Fertiliser Australia Board for them to have a look at and consider, and then they'll make a final decision on what the industry position is. But my my report really sort of emphasised that there are some levers we can pull in policy and also in extension and, and development about addressing nitrous oxide directly in, ag- in agricultural uh, settings. Some of those include using uh, additional chemicals called nitrification inhibitors, which slow down the release of nitrogen and so sort of uh, stabilise the ni- fertilise the nitrogen and make it less liable to produce nitrous oxide. And there's a lot of science gone into that. And I think um, that's probably one area that... Uh, policy could look at is trying to incentivise the use of those inhibitors uh, for farmers.
1: Dr Ron Norton from Norton Agronomics speaking with Selena Green. Four minutes to one. Well the shortage of truck drivers is one of the reasons and Lithium is looking at shifting its freight system to rail. The mine is based at Greenbushes about 240 kilometres south of Perth and the company is undertaking a feasibility study just to determine whether it's worth Recommissioning the the Greenbushes to Bunbury railway line as demand for lithium increases and an expansion project nears completion. Project Development Manager Ian Maguire sees lots of benefits from moving from road to rail.
4: There's obviously a reduction or a, a potential reduction in trucks on the south-western highway and we're certainly cognisant of the safety risks of trucking up and down uh, what is a very busy arterial road. We also see the benefits in sustainability, Um, it is immediately more sustainable to move product by rail rather than road. There are also significant decarbonisation opportunities with rail, um, with the opportunity to move to battery electric locomotives particularly in this route which is relatively short, less than 80 kilometres and going from a loaded train at the top of the Darling Scarp down to sea levels so for the benefits of regenerative braking into the future. So we see that as a, a real benefit in reducing our, our carbon footprint. And we do have challenges around getting truck drivers on occasion to move our product from uh, by truck to Bunbury. It um, doesn't influence the amount of production we make, but it, it's, uh, it's one of our considerations in terms of the opportunity to move to rail.
1: Ian McGuire from Talison Lithium with Jackie Lynch. Two to one. 7,669 sheep sold at the Muche sale yards this morning. Almost half of those were lambs. Terry Birkin's been at the sale. Hi, Terry. Can you run through those details?
13: Hi, Belinda. We had a bigger sale today with an increase of just over 2,000 head from last week. Approximately 4,000 older sheep were yarded with around 2,500 old season lambs and 1,000 new season lambs on offer. Old season lamb values remained similar to last week while some good quality lines of new season lambs selling at to four hundred and fifty cents a kilo carcass weight. Although there was the odd pen of plain to light frame lambs and mutton selling at to ten dollars, these were the exception to the rule, and while several processors were inactive, the mutton market still improved by around four to five dollars a head. New season store lambs made from ten to forty five dollars while air freight light lambs were selling from fifty to seventy five dollars a head. New season trade lambs returned $65 to $100 and heavy lambs sold to $112 a head. Old season store lambs 18 kilograms and under were mostly merino lambs ranging from $10 to $49, while trade, trade lambs returned $50 to $74 and heavy lambs reaching $112 a head. A pen of exceptional crossbred hoggets realized $94, while merino ewe hoggets sold to a top of $45 a head. Mutton gained today with boner ewe selling from $10 to $21 Medium ewes returning $25 to $40 and heavy ewes sold to $59 a head. And although one pen of four heavy ewes made $100, this is not indicative of the current market, with the best Merino weathers reaching $60 and mature rams still averaging $30 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Mewshake.
1: Thank you, Terry. After one on the world today, are volunteer firefighters getting enough psychological support as they prepare for bushfire season? One o'clock.